Hi, James. Ben, how are you? Not too well, not too well. I am pretty under the weather, so uh, hopefully I can power through this podcast, doing it for the people. But other than that, I'm doing okay. Back in Taiwan. Was it the flight back? What happened? No, no, I, I was coming down with something kind of the whole trip. And then the last few days, it got it got pretty bad, which is kind of a bummer because I spent the last few days kind of just <laughs> moping in my hotel room. I was worried about the flight, but the flight ended up going okay. I made it back. I'm pumped full of medicine and ready to do a podcast. Yeah, I have to say traveling while being sick is the worst, but I'm glad you made it back okay. Thank you. And I had to make it back because this is our last podcast uh, for a while anyway. Next week, I'm going back to America. So this is the reason I need to get better now with the family as I do every summer and podcasting is a little bit difficult. We may have a podcast over the summer. That's the great thing about RSS is it'll pop up in your feed if we do. But for now, the plan is this is the last of sort of the regular weekly cadence until the next season. We better make it count then, huh? Absolutely. In fact, we should inflate the price. Uh, first, though, we need to thank WordPress.com for sponsoring this season of Exponent. Whether you'd like to build a personal blog, a business site, or both, creating your website on WordPress.com helps others find you, remember you, and connect with you. You don't need experience. They guide you through the process from start to finish and take care of the technical side to get your site up and running. Their customer support team is made up of WordPress experts eager to help you get the most from your site. And when are they available, James? 24 by 7. That's right. Plans start at just $4 per month, and all plans include a custom domain name for the life of the plan. Go to wordpress.com slash exponent to get 50% off your website today. That's wordpress.com slash exponent. And given this is you know the last episode of the season, I just want to, again, thank wordpress.com in particular. As you know, I used to work there a long time ago, but not just because of that, but also I'm a big believer in WordPress and what it represents. And from my estimation, it's the best place to start because you can start there, you can branch out, you can do your own thing, and you can build something like Search Hacker in the long run. And WordPress means a lot to me, and WordPress.com is a great place to get started. So anyhow, our thanks to them for sponsoring this season. But speaking of open source, we should move on. We should indeed. Actually, I I have a GitHub account, which is what we're going to talk about this week. Microsoft bought GitHub for $7.5 billion at the beginning of the week, which is certainly a big deal. And the second time in three years that Microsoft overshadowed WWDC. I wonder if they're permanently timing it this way, just like, okay, guys, maybe you won this platform, but we can still upstage you when we want to. Yeah. Well, because two years ago was LinkedIn, and this year was GitHub. And yeah, I have a GitHub account for my strategy theme lives on there. Not exactly the most exciting stuff. Do I have to disclose that, that I'm an accountant? I don't think so. I have a Facebook account, too, and we talk about them plenty of <laughs> Anyhow, a very, very interesting purchase. And it was one of those things that was kind of rumored over the weekend. And I was actually kind of annoyed because it's a purchase that I've thought about previously. And I didn't think I'd written about it. And, you know, I did a quick search and confirmed I hadn't. But it was one of those ones where the rumor came out. And and it was a rumor that came out in a way that there's different types of rumors. Like some rumors are like kind of throwing stuff out there and see if it sticks. And you can kind of tell if they are. Other ones, especially about this kind of stuff, they come out and you can kind of have a really strong sense that it's probably like crossing T's and dotting I's as it were. And it kind of doubled down on this because it was so obvious a move from my estimation. So I actually did something which I don't always do was knowing that I was probably going to write about WWC on Tuesday, you know, because the keynote was going to be on Monday. I went ahead on Monday and the daily update wrote about the deal. And then it turned out WWC is maybe a little less interesting than necessary. And I kind of wrote about it again on Tuesday. I felt such confidence that for sure this rumor was correct. It was going to happen that I felt safe writing about it even before it was announced. Interesting. Well, I think we should dive in because it is a super fascinating acquisition. 
Yeah, so you got to back up and you got to think about Microsoft sort of broadly. And I'm going to come at this mostly from the Microsoft perspective, but all those folks that love GitHub or use GitHub and are concerned about GitHub, which there was a lot of sort of concern flying around, you know, big bad Microsoft buying sort of this core piece of sort of the open source world, you know, is understandable. But when we walk through the Microsoft perspective, it should come as, I think, great comfort to anyone that's worried about GitHub in the long run. Mm, Let's do it. So Microsoft for a long time, and we talked about this a few weeks ago and I wrote about it in the end of Windows, was, you know, Windows was the lever on which the entire company was sort of built. And Microsoft used to brag, you know, we have like $13 billion businesses, but like all those billion dollar businesses were all predicated on Windows being sort of the linchpin. And the linchpin was, and this came down because it ties into what we've been talking about the past few weeks about platforms and aggregators and things like that. Windows was, as we talked about, the classic platform. It facilitated the connection between developers and users tied into the Windows API. And Windows was super open. Like anyone could walk up and build an app and sell it however they wanted to. But underneath the surface, it was all tied together in a way that people couldn't break in. And that was really the foundation of Microsoft's dominance. They leveraged that not just to sell the operating system and license, you know, all those PCs that were sold, but they leverage it into selling software like Microsoft Office. They leverage it into email exchange, which leveraged into identity and active directory, which was leveraged into SQL server, leveraged into all sorts of things on the back end where Microsoft sort of based on this point of leverage with Windows just expanded all over the entire sort of like enterprise IT area. And not just that, from a developer perspective, that was the point of leverage was they had all the developers. And the thing to remember about developers, this is super duper critical to understand. When you're thinking about developers, it's so tempting to get stuck on like Silicon Valley, like developers at Silicon Valley and startups and things like that. The vast majority of developers do not work in Silicon Valley and do not work for startups. They work for ordinary businesses writing custom line of business applications to solve a particular problem or do whatever it is, or they work for consultancies or contractors that go in and and solve problems. Like that's what developers do by and large. They're not starting companies. And all those developers for years and years and years wrote Windows programs using a Windows development stack. And that was the Windows lock-in. The Windows lock-in wasn't like Microsoft Office. You get Microsoft Office on the Mac, right? The lock-in was all these other programs that is like an iceberg. You see the top of the iceberg. That's all the consumer applications that you're familiar with. But the real power in the Windows ecosystem is all those applications under the surface that no one sees and no one's going to pay to rewrite. Who wants to rewrite a line of business application that just gets the job done? It's been getting the job done for 15 years. No one wants to. You have to understand that world to understand Microsoft's power and leverage and their thinking going forward. I mean, it's incredible the way, like when you just go through that list you went through, that they managed to leverage from Windows into Office, into all those different places. And then once you become dominant in that way, then why else would you write a line of business application somewhere else? Because you've got half a dozen already there and you need them all. You're not going to switch platforms. The benefit of switching platforms would be so minor anyway, and having to rewrite it would be a pain. You know, it's kind of crazy when you look back and think about it that it even got broken at all. But it certainly speaks to a pretty big change of mindset required inside the organization to go from being successful in an environment where you have that much leverage and you've been able to use it so effectively in so many areas to that point of leverage really starting to fade and thinking about a future where you don't have that. Right. And so what happened was the cloud happened. And what's so critical to understand is 
Microsoft succeeded in the data center for many, many years, not by having the best products in every category, but by virtue of having good enough products in most categories and tying them all together. This is where Active Directory, which was a quote unquote free product, was arguably like the most valuable free product of all time because it tied all these different pieces together and you'd sign in your computer and you logged into all these sorts of things. And it was good enough. And from an IT perspective, it was so much easier and more feasible and more sustainable in the long run to sort of like have the proverbial one throat to choke and to have one stack that you were familiar with. And there was an entire ecosystem around it. There were contractors, there were consultants that would come in and put all this stuff together. And relative to like the old world, to these custom IT stacks, it was actually hugely disruptive. What people don't understand is Microsoft in the data center in particular was massively disruptive coming in with these much cheaper products built on commodity hardware, commodity Intel based processors and offering solutions that were a fraction of the cost of these things that were coming with their custom iron, their whole like massive installation process. And, you know, people don't think about Microsoft because they got disrupted, but this is often the path of disruption, right? The one that's disrupted today was the disruptor in the past. And that was very much the case with Microsoft, particularly in the data center. Yeah. And as we've talked about, it ends up blinding you to what comes next. And A, in terms of like thinking about Microsoft completely missing the boat on the phone because they were so invested in Windows and couldn't see the world in any other way other than that. It's the same thing in terms of thinking about it from data centers. They were so invested in, I mean, it being on-premise, like a piece of commodity hardware with Windows running on top of it, it becomes very hard to imagine a world where that doesn't exist. Right, exactly. And what happened was, we've talked about this in the context of how value chains get disrupted. It used to be the case that kind of the most important consideration for a CTO or a CIO was how much of a pain in the ass is this going to be? Like, that's a world where Microsoft, by doing a sort of all-in-one solution, we can have all these different pieces and they will mostly work together because we do it all. That's such a big advantage that other things like the user experience or how much people like it or is it best in breed don't really matter as much because they're secondary concerns. And what happened with the cloud, the cloud so fundamentally changed things because people think, oh, it was cheaper. It's not necessarily cheaper at all, or it might be, but probably not. And people think, oh, well, it moved costs from being a capital expense to be an operational expense. And that's part of it. It helps your metrics. But at the end of the day, like the amount of money you're paying out is still the same. One of the really big things that really changed it, though, was just like you offloaded keeping this stuff up to date and keeping it current and dealing with security, all that was basically contracted out to the cloud provider, right? You're always using the latest version of a cloud application and you don't have to worry about the servers. You don't have to worry about security. That's what you're paying for. Again, you have to worry about it. But like from like the server perspective, you know, like maintaining servers, for example. Patching the application is not necessary. Right, exactly. And again, there's lots of obstacles to moving to that, especially if you're used to a sort of on-premise solution. But if you're able to, if you're able to move that, you're kind of released from this priority, which is, oh, can we actually keep the stuff up to date and keep using all that sort of stuff? And what happens is that allows other priorities to rise in importance, right? So the user experience starts to matter more because that gating priority is now gone. Does it work well on mobile starts to matter more because that gating priority is gone. And when that's happening at the same time, that mobile is becoming a much more important thing. You can see Microsoft stuck in this PC-centric mindset. Actually, all this stuff worked together. They were stuck thinking about PCs. Their stuff was hard to use on PCs. It was even impossible, a total mess on mobile. And meanwhile, the thing that was locking them in was kind of being 
chipped away by this new sort of cloud-based solutions. And did it affect the core Microsoft products? Well, I mean, Google Apps certainly has always been, Microsoft's long viewed it as their biggest threat, but there's lots of stuff that came along and offering sort of little solutions and maybe it's file sharing or something. It's like, Microsoft, we have SharePoint, but yeah, you know, Box just makes it so much easier and it works on mobile and we don't have to keep it up to date and everyone hates SharePoint anyway. And it's like, we can just slot this in, right? And then you have a company like Okta that I've heard about the daily update where they're like, oh, you know what? You have to sign into all these cloud applications. Guess what? You can use your Active Directory sign-in. We will sit in the middle and federate everything. So you can kind of sign in one time, single sign-in. And Microsoft's just kind of like, okay, yeah, fine. You guys take care of it. It's just a little world out there. And what happens is that little world starts getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And Microsoft is stuck in this lock-in leverage world that is increasingly the point of leverage is going away. So everything you just said, I 100% agree with. I would characterize that as the way in which cloud starts to infiltrate the existing big companies. And all the while you have like these paradigm shifts like cloud, big data, mobile all happening and it's giving rise to a whole breed of new companies and they are starting from scratch. And when you are starting from scratch, the idea of building a data center from scratch, I mean, this is something we've talked about, the idea of building a data center from scratch when you can just go with AWS AWS looks way more attractive and Microsoft doesn't have any leverage. It's not a case of these things that are exploding in popularity with all these Microsoft services and clouds chipping it away. They are native on these cloud services and Microsoft was not winning and is not winning with those types of companies as they explode in importance. Right. And so that's the key thing, too, is all this stuff was it's easy to talk about cloud on one side and mobile on the other. And these being these two disruptions that happened to Microsoft, but they very much worked in tandem. I mean, like the superior experience that a cloud company could deliver by virtue of being focused on one thing and iterating rapidly and controlling the entire experience meant they could deliver superior mobile applications, for example. And meanwhile, folks are using their mobile applications to move around and and access information. And now like try to get into the firewall and like like the whole like security model is predicated on everything's behind the firewall. And once you're inside there, you access stuff. Well, now if you're out and about, are you going to VPN every time? It's a real pain. There's obstacles there. Suddenly having a different solution that assumes there's no firewall, that everything is sort of public in a way that a cloud provider has to think like all these paradigm shifts were all interconnected and all just sort of like weakening that windows lock in and that windows point of leverage from multiple directions. It wasn't just any one thing. It wasn't just like multiple things. It was multiple things and the interaction of those things. And that's why it eroded so rapidly for Microsoft. And you soon find yourself in a position where not only are you not selling into these organizations and you have all these competitive threats rising around you, but your leverage on an incredibly important community of which has driven you to the top, particularly with Windows, is starting to erode as well. And that's developers. Right, exactly. You know, Microsoft had their entire web stack, like they had IS and then the .NET on top of it. And they had a stack to write, because a lot of business applications had sort of moved on from being written for PCs to being written in the cloud. But for most sort of Microsoft-centric companies, they moved into the Microsoft cloud, right? And in a data center, running on Microsoft servers, using Microsoft language and runtimes and things like that and dev tools. And so it was still the sort of same model, but you can see how 
actually the lock-in had started to weaken a bit because it was still the Microsoft stack, but and it was running on Microsoft servers, but it was getting divorced from Windows, right? Like that whole backend existed because of Windows, but it was no longer tied to like the Windows API like it was back in the day. And I think it's one of those things where from a Microsoft perspective, it's hard to see the danger because it just seems like the same thing. Developers and all these businesses are still writing programs on the Microsoft stack, and you don't quite see that the lock-in has actually started to decrease significantly because the money is still flowing the exact same way that it did previously. Yeah, I mean, it's funny the way that you see disrupted businesses do really well all the way until the point they don't. And that's for exactly that reason. You see the money keeps flowing and all of a sudden there's this shift where it's like, oh, now we really have a problem. And that's where they really start falling off as a result. Right. So let's kind of fast forward to what Microsoft is today. And I talked about this in the end of Windows. And the point of the end of Windows is not that Windows is going away. Windows is going to be around for a very long time. And Microsoft would certainly love you to buy a Windows computer. It's rather that it's an acknowledgement that from a strategic perspective, you can't use Windows as leverage for everything. And you saw this, you know, in the end days of Steve Ballmer, like holding back Office on iPad because they wanted to come out on Windows first. And it's this view of the world where Windows is at the center and Windows drives the other businesses. And it kind of got perverted at the end where other businesses were expected to drive windows, which, you know, that's when the warning signs should have been going off crazy because actually the relationship got flipped. Previously, it was that Microsoft, you know, windows drove everything. And when everything has to drive windows, it's like the tail wagging the dog. That's a really, really good point. It totally is. What Microsoft is today is really thinking about it in being two organizations or two sort of goals. One is the productivity. Like they want to be your best friend for productivity. That productivity can be everything from business people doing spreadsheets to developers to all those sorts of pieces. And this is where sort of the Windows experience component is. And the idea here is, again, they are a tool maker. Like in the idea is people will be doing lots of things and Microsoft's going to give you the best of breed tools to do those sorts of things. And all those tools will be provided as a service. You get the ongoing service revenue and that sort of conversion that is, believe me, the subscription-based recurring revenue model is a great one. I endorse it highly. And you know, the shift that has happened there. And then the other side, you have the cloud where you'll center on Microsoft Azure. And the strategy there for Microsoft, and one of the reasons why Azure's grown so well is all these companies already had all this investment in the backend infrastructure that they owned and operated. And they want to move to the cloud for sort of projects going forward because it's better in so many ways, but they're not going to like abandon all the investment they've already made. It just wouldn't be financially prudent. So what they need is a sort of hybrid approach where they can bridge the old approach and the new approach. And so that's basically what Microsoft is specializing in. They're way ahead of offering like hybrid solutions where some stuff runs on premise, some stuff runs in the cloud and Microsoft helps you bridge that and get those pieces to work together. And it's almost like they're transitioning as a company with their customers to, yes, we still have a big cash cow with all the old business, which they still do. They still sell a ton of money from Windows Server and things like that. But the growth is really Azure and they're transitioning as a company along with their customers. It's a great model. I think it makes a ton of sense. It's a real differentiator from AWS because they can help you bridge that shift in a way that AWS, which is just sort of purely the new model, cannot. Totally. And it's to that credit as well. I mean, we've talked about this a little bit, but there is a world in which they were stubborn about this and they just kept on forcing on-premise stuff because that's the model and that's the way they've always done it. They recognized it and moved towards it proactively and are learning with their customers as a result. And even as the point of leverage of Windows declines, they're still recognizing it's almost like a legacy leverage and they're taking advantage of that to move into this new world. And it's to their absolute credit. You just kind of nailed the exact problem. 
legacy leverage, right? Like at the end of the day, Microsoft is still sort of from a strategic perspective predicated on legacy leverage. And that legacy leverage came from Windows. And that was the conclusion of my end of Windows piece is it's easy to see here and celebrate that it's not going to thing going forward. But if you back up, how exactly is Microsoft gaining customers? How exactly are they driving people to their solutions? And honestly, the single best thing they still have going for them is Windows, right? Like the thing that they want to get away from, they need to get away from is still the most sort of powerful thing they have. And this was the point that I was kind of trying to expand on and point out in this article by connecting it to Apple, connecting it to iOS. And the idea that Apple can kind of not give a crap about developers, or they care, but like they can treat them poorly and take a big share of their income and not do all the various services that they want or do them slowly or whatever. And do their own versions of apps and things that developers are already doing. They say, oh, this is a big category or someone's doing this well, we should do it too. Right. And why can they do that? Because they have leverage. They have iOS, which has hundreds of millions of customers and the most attractive customers from a sort of monetization standpoint, both in terms of advertising and in terms of purchases. And that lets them do what they want because they don't need to like make developers like them because at the end of the day, developers like making money. And developers, I'm just talking about like your one person shop or whatever. I'm talking big companies and big organizations. And you see this even in enterprise. iPhones dominate the enterprise market, which is a fascinating sort of turn of events. But at the end of the day, they have no choice but to do what Apple wants because Apple controls all the users that they want access to. As compared to Microsoft and their legacy leverage, I mean, it was funny when you were talking about that before, I was like, yeah, they're getting new customers. What they're hoping for is their existing customers don't die. And that's, in the long run, not going to work out too well. Yeah, especially in a world where companies are sort of dying faster than ever, right? It's definitely a big problem. So this is the real strategic problem for Microsoft going forward. No one has sort of praised what Satya Nadella has done over time, more than me, in large part because of what I said they should do. <laughs> but my whole argument all along is Microsoft is much better suited. The nature of the company is to be a broad-based sort of service-oriented company that gives customers what they want. They're not a product company. They're not a, we're going to wow you and win you with sort of the superior Apple-style user experience. You're going to win customers. No, that's, that's not what Microsoft does. And that's okay. Like, different companies do different things. And what Microsoft is doing now with that sort of two-pronged strategy makes so much sense for what Microsoft Microsoft is. But at the end of the day, you can have something that aligns to your nature and you can change your culture. You know, we talked about those sort of three steps to be focused on this sort of cross-platform solutions that we're not going to be triggered on Windows for everything. But you still need strategy, right, to go the opposite way. And you still need a means of what is the point of leverage? How do you build a moat? It's a two-part, which are kind of the same thing, but two sides of the same coin. One, how do you get customers onto your platform? And two, how do you keep them over the long run? And it's always been the question, despite all the good stuff that Nadella has done, what is the solution for that in the long run? Right. And it's a phenomenal question, and I think it brings us to GitHub. you think that this acquisition speaks to that? So the good thing for Microsoft is, and that this world of sort of development, it's easy to focus on like mobile apps, for example. And Microsoft does not have a mobile platform, and that's a problem for them. You know, there's Android and there's iOS, and they've certainly done work to 
offer tools and things like that on those platforms, like Microsoft Xamarin, for example. The idea was you can write an app on C Sharp, or I think it's a little more complicated than that, but you don't have to necessarily use all of Apple's tools, but you can still publish to iOS. And again, the point of these applications are not to build sort of consumer apps that are win on like touch and feel. It's like these line of business apps, right? It's like, we just need a solution that we can write something. It will run on Android or run on iOS. We don't want to spend a lot of time on it because resources are constrained and it's only going to be used by a limited number of people. And Microsoft has spent a lot of time building up their capabilities there. But the other good thing from Microsoft's perspective is that a huge amount of development on these line of business applications and other applications is open source. And it's like, wait, did you just say that open source is good for Microsoft? In this case, it actually is. And the reason is that if the vast majority of applications going forward are built on Linux and in whatever language is the preference of the team or the program or whatever it might be and are deployed in the cloud, that is a world where there is no lock-in. There is no point of leverage in the way there is when it comes to, say, iOS or Android. So the reason why this is good for Microsoft, it's bad from the perspective that having a point of lock-in is better. But if you don't have a point of lock-in, then having a wide open field where you can sort of compete, it's a distant second place. But it's better than being in a world where everything is locked down. You know what I mean? Like Microsoft competing in mobile by building a developer stack where they can deploy to iOS and Android I can see how that's beneficial to business, but that's a hard life to sort of live. You know what I mean? Where you're basically competing with the first party tool sets and your experience is always going to be sort of inferior. But when it comes to cloud apps, who's going to build the best stack? And anyone can do it because it's open. And it's like Google and the open web back in the day, right? There are no limitations. There is no obvious winner, any sort of obvious lock-in. And I think that is the market that in the long run, Microsoft is very eager to sort of win in. And they're going to win in by having not a point of leverage or lock-in, but by having the best sort of developer experience and they're going to win by being the best. It's not without a sense of irony that because Microsoft's lost all its leverage, the company that was famous for the term embrace and extend is now coming round to being a big proponent and a big beneficiary of open source. I want to make sure I triple understand what it is that you're saying. Actually, maybe I'm still lost here. Like the reason that they want for line of business apps? So there's a whole host of like applications to be built in the cloud. And those applications are going to be built with open source tooling and frameworks and all those sorts of things. So the idea is you can write an application, it can run on AWS, or it could run on Azure, or it could run on Google Cloud, or it could run your on-premise sort of cloud, or you can wrap it up in sort of like a container and quite literally like port it from one to the other. Now, there's more lock-in than that when it comes to the sort of public clouds, but in that world, it's not obvious that when you're running for iOS, like Apple has a massive advantage, not when it comes to like the developer tool set. Like the vast majority of people writing for iOS are going to use Xcode. The vast majority of people writing for Android are going to use Google solution, which is escaping me because they're transitioning. But in this sort of cloud world, it's kind of open game and it could end up that everyone just kind of uses their own sort of cobbled together solutions. But my contention is that Microsoft's goal is to really be the tool set of choice for developers in the long run. And a huge number of those are in shops that are already familiar with Microsoft, are already used to using their tools. But there's an entire sort of new generation of developers that you kind of referred to before, the ones that aren't about to die, that are thinking about, okay, I want to build applications. Where do I start? Where do I go? What's the sort of best IDE I should use? Which cloud should I choose? And all of these decisions are kind of open game. There's no particular lock-in reason to choose one or the other, right? People don't choose Xcode because 
because they think it's the best IDE. They choose Xcode because that is what you need to use if you want to build the best possible apps to reach iOS users, right? In the cloud, it's not so much like that. And I think Microsoft sees that as a real opportunity where we don't have any points of lock-in. So what we could do is find an open field and compete on the merits. And you think that Microsoft from a consumer perspective, not being the sort of uh, winning on the merits type of company, they've always been a very developer centric, very developer friendly. That is very much in the DNA to build the best set of tools and ways to operate when it comes to building apps. It very much is in their wheelhouse. I got you now. Makes a lot more sense. Let me explore this notion a little bit more with you. So GitHub is undoubtedly considered the place to do all this kind of work amongst developers. So the benefit to Microsoft or the synergy that Microsoft gets as a result of doing this. And I mean, that's one of the things that I always consider when I look at acquisitions, like how do these two entities together equal something that if they weren't together, they wouldn't be able to achieve? Is this a brand benefit for Microsoft? Microsoft. I'm not sure GitHub's going to grow any faster because of Microsoft's acquisition. Is it because Microsoft gets this reflected halo of being the place where, you know, it looks after GitHub and therefore developers find the brand that more appealing? Or you think that they could start to do subtle things that start to shift people towards Azure as opposed to Google or AWS, or that Azure is able to improve because it could somehow integrate better with GitHub? Where did the OnePlus one equals three start coming in in the acquisition. So I would actually argue leave aside GitHub for just a moment. Okay. And there's an entire stack of tooling all the way from the cloud to your IDE to all sorts of intervening technologies where you kind of have a choice of what to use. And you can patch stuff together. You could use you know Visual Studio or Microsoft Code Editor, which is quite popular, to write in Perl or whatever you want to write to and use open source toolkits and frameworks and deploy it using Kubernetes or whatever you want to use to AWS. I mean, like you can patch all this sort of stuff together. And so, Microsoft can make money at different points in that stack. They can make money in terms of Azure is probably the most obvious one where the app is just going to run in the long run. And, you know, they can offer sort of integrated solution where it all sort of works together well. But it might be selling tooling to enterprises, for example, like Visual Studio or selling databases. Obviously, they have the Azure and, and Cosmo DB and things like that. They also have MySQL, which is on-premise. There's all sorts of opportunities in this space. Like the developer tools market is a huge market that Microsoft still retains a big presence in and I think has designs on a whole lot more. So without GitHub, that's a market that Microsoft has a lot of opportunity in and a lot of places to compete in. So that's sort of where I would start. So where does GitHub come in with that? Well, the sort of fundamental challenge in almost any business is how do you acquire customers? And we've talked about this in the context of startups. Like you look at customer acquisition costs where you have your best customers you get right away, but as your sort of quality of customer degrades, you have to spend more to get them and they're worth less over time. And you can very easily fall into sort of a bad place where you have these huge growth numbers early on that are not actually representative of the viability of the business in the long run because your customer acquisition costs sort of spiral out of control, right? So when it comes to Microsoft and developers, they're in this world where they are one of many options. They can go with Microsoft. They can not. They can do this. They can do that. So how does GitHub fit into that? Well, one, all of the developers are already on GitHub, right? So the most popular way to sort of like store your code that you're working on is to use what's called a repository and a Git repository. This is sort of the great irony of this is that Git, this sort of software, was invented by Linus Torvalds, the inventor of Linux. 
And so GitHub is not Git. Like you can download Git and run it on your own computer or you can run it on your own server. Like there's lots of Git offerings. Like Atlassian has one. I think it's the second biggest one. And what GitHub is though is it's basically a cloud service where they take care of running the actual repository, which Git is kind of a huge pain in the ass. So it's actually very helpful. But then it's in a centralized place where you can access it on any computer. You can download it. It's synced. It's backed up. It's in the cloud. All the advantages come with that. It also has a sort of built-in sort of network effect where almost every open source project is on there because it's a synced place where everyone can do pull requests and they can merge things, they can fork things, all those sorts of things. And there's a sort of communications layer to it that goes with it. They kind of took the world by storm, you know, a while ago by offering this for free. And Atlassian, I think, was the biggest previously with Bitbucket and they had very cheap plans. But then GitHub comes in and is like, it's all for free. And if you did it for free, it was public for open source, that was fine. And then you could pay to keep it private, for example. And then they had enterprise plans. And it's a decent-sized company. They're doing $300 million in revenue, I think, which is a very respectable number. But the long and short of it is all the developers are on there. It's kind of like it's a touch point for everyone. And all the developers are on there not because they were forced on there by their bosses, not because they had to go there, but because it's a great service that fulfills a really important need that all developers have. And it's organically driven customer acquisition. Like GitHub's not spending money on customer acquisition. People go on there naturally because that's where everyone else is and because it's a useful service and there's a sort of network effect that goes with it. And I think that is the really valuable piece. Microsoft is selling all these items, all these pieces that don't have any sort of network effect to them, that don't have any sort of organic reason to go to them beyond the fact that, you know, maybe you like the code editor, for example, right? But competing purely on features is a really, really difficult way to get customers because you have to spend to show them, look, my features are better. It's worth trying. It's just a really difficult path to go down. And what GitHub gives them is a organic growth engine, an organic marketing engine, organic way to connect with basically every developer on earth. And so the payoff is not that $300 million in revenue that GitHub is driving now, which you'll probably wrapped into Microsoft's general offerings and things like that. It's like the 20-year payoff of having one of the best possible touch points for every developer on earth. And that will pay off with Azure. It'll pay off with Microsoft developer tools. It'll pay off in all sorts of places that I think are kind of hard to articulate. And I actually had a hard time writing this conclusion in part because I really strongly believe in the value of this to Microsoft, but I believe in it for sort of fuzzy reasons that are harder to say, oh, they're going to drive this amount of revenue. It's going to get this sort of synergy, right? But it's this organic touch point that is free. There's no customer acquisition costs for GitHub. And now it's a part of Microsoft. By extension, the acquisition costs of Microsoft for developers is dramatically cut. So I'm with you 100% on the GitHub part. I worry that they use GitHub as a means to driving to all those other developer tools or Azure or whatever. But we talked about the fact that so much of the advantage that they have there is based on their legacy leverage. Like you said, they don't have a platform to push people to and the amount of additional benefit they're going to get if you put Azure in front of all these developers and make it a default somehow. Some of them might take it up, but of all the people who are probably going to be resistant to defaults and are going to do the work to figure out which tools are best and which tools aren't. Like if you think about the number of engineers and you think about whether they're likely to be the ones that have Apple Maps or Google Maps on their iOS device, like they're the types of folks that would do the work to figure out, oh, actually this other option is better. I'm going to resist the pull of the default that Microsoft might get with GitHub. 
Yeah, I think it's a little more complicated than that. So one, again, we're not talking about the sort of like most precious developers in the world that are building like finely tuned consumer apps. Like we're talking about like the grand scale of most developers in the world are just putting in their nine to five to build your sort of corporate, you know, line of business app that is just needed to get the job done. That's one. Number two, I think the reality is that AWS in many respects, is shifted into sort of the old IBM saying, like, no one got fired for buying IBM, right? No one gets fired for renting AWS because that's like the default. And I think AWS benefits hugely from it's presumed that's where you go and that's where you start. And again, Azure has leveraged very nicely its relationship with current enterprises to really and focus on this hybrid approach to get a lot of customers that way. But almost just being in the conversation is step one. And, and this is, I think, a great way to do that where maybe developer, they just defaulted it. AWS. And now there's a way to actually make them aware they might want to actually choose Azure. Like there are actually things about Azure that are better or maybe more useful or more applicable to, you know, what they're building. And, you know, the payoff for these cloud services. And again, I've talked about toolings and stuff like that. The real payoff is the cloud, because when you get the next huge company and it starts on Azure, it's probably going to stay on Azure, just like the vast majority today start on AWS and they stay in AWS. And when they get big, if they go anywhere, it's to build their own custom infrastructure. It's rarely to just switch to another one. I guess it happens probably occasionally. But by and large, the real goal here is getting your foot in the door at the very earliest stages. And that's a huge weak point for Azure. Again, not because Azure is necessarily worse. That's a different discussion about the relative what's good about the various clouds. But just because AWS is the default choice, and this is a way to sort of disrupt and get into that default choice and disrupt and get into it on a sort of zero marginal basis going forward, right? They had to put in $7.5 billion up front, but now going forward, they have an in to every developer on earth. And again, I can't articulate perfectly how this will play out, but I absolutely believe that, you know, this customer acquisition cost sort of angle and to have this touch point is so critical to business that it's hard to sort of overpay for it, which is a good thing because they paid a whole lot of money for GitHub. So this is interesting. I read your weekly article and there was something that kind of the fuzziness of what you were describing, I get it. It's a long time out and it's not assured. And there was something about it that was almost like a splinter in my mind around, is there another way of looking at this? Or is there another way of potentially thinking about how Microsoft could get benefits that nobody else could get and would justify Microsoft, they were rumored to have been quite a bit above Google. And it's like, what assets do Microsoft have that they could merge with GitHub that Google or other bidders don't have. And the thing that actually came to mind was something that we mentioned at the start of the show, which was actually LinkedIn. And I want to take a step back here. We've talked a lot about Facebook and the way that Facebook makes a whole bunch of money is by people giving them a whole bunch of data in terms of using the service. So you you upload all this information about yourself and it makes it very valuable to potential advertisers because they want to reach people that have those attributes. LinkedIn is kind of the career equivalent of that. You upload all this career-related data that speaks to what school you went to, what jobs you've had, and it's useful as like an online CV, but that becomes particularly helpful for firms looking to recruit but in the developer space, like the areas of the most valuable employees in the companies that are now the most valuable in the world, you take a look at the biggest by market cap companies in the world. These are all tech companies like developers are becoming more and more and more important and they don't like LinkedIn. 
it ends up just being this free-for-all where recruiters are always sending invites and they don't really update it that much. But you think about what the equivalent of Facebook or LinkedIn is for developers and where they're leaving all kinds of trails of data, it's GitHub. And all the public repository, all that data that's public. So the private stuff, GitHub's already able to monetize and any potential acquirer of GitHub would be able to continue to monetize. The public data, the stuff that GitHub allows you to create public repositories for free, they make no money on and most other people wouldn't be able to make money on. But there is one company that could make a hell of a lot of money on that and that is LinkedIn. If you integrate in all that data on developers and what they're doing and how good they are, what types of code they've worked on, what types of problems they've worked on. The value to people looking to hire engineers is incredible. And I started to think about this. Well, maybe this is from the perspective of augmenting LinkedIn as opposed to augmenting Microsoft. That's very interesting. I think that's probably a really great argument for why Microsoft's willingness to pay would be higher than just about anyone else. But I'm not convinced that that was the driving reason. I think that's a frosting on the cake sort of argument. Not that I'm dismissing your points. I think it's a really interesting one. But it's more, I don't think you pay $7.5 billion for that. I mean, maybe you do. You pay 20-something billion for LinkedIn. And if you think about the employees that are the most important in terms of building the companies of the future, it's engineers. I think the idea kind of came to me when I came across a startup out here in Silicon Valley, and they've been building these tools for universities and giving them away for free, targeting the hard sciences, targeting comp sci, math, chemistry, the likes of which. And I was like, well, how are they making money? And you dig into it. And what they're doing is that they're then monetizing the back end by selling the data on these students that they're providing by doing their homework in the tools or whatever to companies looking to hire graduates in these sciences. And they are paying an extraordinary amount for access to that data. Now, That's a company just targeting graduates of this. And LinkedIn's kind of getting locked out of that market because the data that they have isn't great. They're not collecting it from developers because developers don't use it because they don't need to. Like if you were going to try to figure out how to build the equivalent of LinkedIn for developers, GitHub and all that public data is the place that I would go to first. I can see your argument. So my reasoning for why I believe this is absolutely going to be a deal is and maybe it's confirmation bias at play, which I was certainly always on guard for. But this idea that Microsoft needs a initial touch point with the customers of the future, and I think they need it on the consumer side too. This is my argument for why I think they should buy Slack, is not because Slack is going to be a huge moneymaker necessarily, but because Slack spreads virally. People go out of their way to download it, to get it in a way they don't for most of Microsoft's products. Like They're sort of forced into them. And this idea of having a way to reach developers of the future, to have a touch point for a company without a point of leverage is critical. Microsoft is in such a more difficult state in the long run when it comes to competition because they have to win without leverage and that's hard to do. And so how can you compete in a world without leverage? Well, you can have the best, but having the best stuff is 
still really difficult because it's really hard to articulate and explain and convince people that you have the best stuff. So many companies are predicated on we're going to have the best XYZ and they go out of business even though they have the best XYZ because they weren't actually able to acquire customers efficiently. And I think this idea of GitHub giving them a way to efficiently reach the developers of the future, it's so important to like the viability of Microsoft in the long run. It's hard for me to not think that's the driving concern. And the other, I guess, point that just occurred to me with your LinkedIn idea is one, again, it makes total sense, but two, it's critical for Microsoft. And this is why the sort of backlash was a bit of a concern, I think, for them is GitHub needs to retain that sort of attractiveness of people going there of their own volition and it being sort of the first choice. Microsoft could have built their own centralized server, right? Being the existing network of people that already use GitHub is the true value there. And if they are turning around, oh, we're going to now leverage all your data to let recruiters better contact you and fish out your details and find you, that's not a very good way to sort of maintain a platform that I think the greatest value comes from people's desire to use it willingly. I mean, I can certainly appreciate that point because of the discussions you and I have had around Facebook, for example. But like everything that comes out around Facebook, it doesn't cause people to stop using it. In fact, the usage numbers since all this stuff in the last few months has gone on, the usage numbers have gone up. And it's the same kind of thing with LinkedIn. I think people know that that's the way the data gets used and they're happy for it to do so. And But you just argued a second ago that developers are the most likely to go in and research and which is the best tool and which isn't, whatever. I mean, is using the general population as a whole and their relative favoring of piracy a good metric for the 24 million developers in the world? I think that's an excellent point. It's not about the individual behavior. That's not what locks people into Facebook or LinkedIn. It's the value and the power of the network and what happens at scale and then trying to recreate that somewhere else. Like, I mean, people know these repositories are public. They're being crawled. They're being looked at. When an engineer goes to get a job at another place, like people ask to see their GitHub repository. Like this is, this is already an accepted part of the recruiting process. Having backend access to that and being able to integrate it with a tool in such a way where it reduces the friction for that to take place. I don't think it's going to be enough of a scare to cause people to stop using GitHub for some other service where the network effects and the benefits and everything that they've already built that points at GitHub, all the repositories that are up there that points at all the enterprise customers that already have the accounts up there. The fact that Microsoft's found a way to monetize the public side, that's not going to be enough to cause people to abandon GitHub. Uh, Maybe. I guess I would just disagree that that was the driver the driver for this purchase. Maybe it ends up being one of the benefits of this. But if you think that was the centralized driver, I guess I would disagree. And that's fine. We can agree to disagree. That has happened before on this podcast. (laughs) It has indeed. I guess the other reason I pushed back on you for the idea that Microsoft's going to use the data for LinkedIn is the reason from my perspective why developers should be happy that Microsoft bought GitHub is If you think about it, what sort of company do you want to rely on if you are a developer? Wouldn't it be better to rely on a company where they can only succeed by being the best, by making you happy? Or would you rather rely on a company where they succeed by locking you in and by using their leverage against you? 
The former sounds like a sort of much better choice, presuming that GitHub could not have made independent. And I put a line there that they couldn't have, and I regret that because I don't know enough to know that for sure. I mean, again, they were doing $300 million in revenue. They had $350 million of venture capital. Was that going to, in the long run, could they have built that out to be something else? Maybe. I mean, Atlassian, which I think is an interesting comparison, is a $15 billion company. And again, they have this sort of second place competitor when it comes to sort of centralized repository. Most of their money is from Jira, their sort of like project management software. And they have a whole sort of suite of things about that. But GitHub has been moving in that direction. Like GitHub has their own sort of Jira competitor. And there's an opportunity from GitHub to build out an entire sort of suite of applications that are important to developers. And again, you think about this, Microsoft has actually already built a lot of that stuff. But all that stuff was built presuming that they already had the developers, you know, sort of building on the Microsoft stack and they need a new point, a new sort of like foundation of the developer stack. And if you think about it, you start on GitHub and you layer on all sorts of services on top of that. It's a much more natural place to start. It can go all the way up to Azure. And again, all these layers of the stack are competitive and open because you're dealing in a sort of open environment. That's a harder place to compete than when everything's a closed environment. But there's still benefit from integration. There's still benefit from one company being able to build an entire sort of thing. And yeah, you could sub in your own thing, but maybe in the long run, especially for new developers, why would you want to? What you just said then, I think was actually the most persuasive version of your argument so far, because instead of talking about Microsoft using GitHub to refer back to Microsoft services or as a top of the funnel for Microsoft, and I'm not sure whether Microsoft stuff is the best. I'm not a developer, so I'm not going to come in here and be the judge of it. But what I will say is that GitHub, this idea that they're not pushing it on people, people are coming to it. This is clearly a company with a culture. It's been infused with like, we're going to build the best stuff, stuff that's so great that developers are going to come to us to use it. And I could see Microsoft thinking, well, let's invest a lot of resources into that and build out a company where we're going to create this entire development friendly environment, starting with GitHub, almost like a Disney Pixar type relationship where Disney sees this company company that is able to produce these things that people love and it wants that engine and it's going to pour the resources, resources that the company needs to do great things into it to see it grow beyond what other people could grow. That of everything you've said is the most persuasive version of your argument I've heard so far. I, I buy that. Well, thank you. And the thing that's interesting is from the GitHub perspective, they've had a very sort of traumatic last few years. There was a sexual harassment scandal. Then they cycled through CEOs and they actually haven't had a CEO for the last nine months. And there's been a sort of internal division from what I've heard about is GitHub spending too much time trying to make money and serve enterprise customers and sort of abandoning and not progressing for the sort of individual subscribers that signed up for free that were sort of GitHub's base. The good thing from a GitHub sort of fan is not only is Microsoft the least likely to jump in there and sort of like force you in one way or the other, just given their relative where they are, broadly speaking, not because they're better people, but because if you're Apple, you're going to leverage towards iOS. If you're Google, you're going to leverage towards Google services. It's that the amount of resources that'll be available to GitHub is going to be so much broader. So one, as far as the go-to-market for their enterprise sales, they don't need to build a sales team anymore. Microsoft has that taken care of, right? So there's a massive sort of like channel aspect that Microsoft brings to the table. It's going to be a huge benefit to GitHub. And it's going to be wrapped in, and not just a channel aspect, but like bundling, right? GitHub's going to be bundled with all these other Microsoft services, and the number of customers is going to skyrocket to enterprise customers, and they're actually probably going to spend less doing it than they would as a standalone company. That's a huge factor. But two, so I actually think Microsoft will actually spend the most money on building back 
up that individual point, the individual developer going on to GitHub and the open source projects being on GitHub. Why? Because that's the point of why they bought it. Like they bought it for the reasons that actually align with individual developers wanting this great product because they want to have an end to those developers by offering a great product. The level of alignment between Microsoft and GitHub users, I think is far higher than it would have been for any other company in a way that's going to be really beneficial to both. Yeah, the point about not really having a dominant platform, they're in play on Azure, but the rest of it, like there's no dominant mobile platform that they're pushing people towards, I think is a really good one. Like Microsoft's come full circle, like what was once like Microsoft embracing and extending, Microsoft's now the one because they don't have anywhere to push people. You're right, they have to compete on their own merits. And that part I also agree with. In terms of acquirers, I actually think it does make lots of sense and developers should be less worried about that aspect of it. Acquisition is a sign of weakness. And that was kind of the point I was trying to add in this article. Not having a point of leverage, like of all the big five tech companies, Microsoft is the weakest because of this point. They don't have that point of leverage in the way all the other ones do. And one, that's why they needed to do it, why they needed to overpay for it. But two, from a sort of developer perspective, that's kind of a good thing because they're really motivated to do a great job with GitHub, keep it open, keep it really great to use because that's the only way forward is to win on the merits. And that's a tough business to be in. But if you're the one that they're trying to win over, it's pretty great. Yeah, I feel like that's a pretty good note to finish the season off on, actually. Very good. Well, our thanks to WordPress.com for sponsoring Exponent, as they have every episode of the season. Again, go to WordPress.com slash Exponent to get 15% off your order. And again, if something big happens or events make it necessary, we may have an episode. But otherwise, it will probably be a couple months here. And as always, it was great talking to you. Yeah, have a wonderful summer and I'll speak to you soon. All right, bye-bye.